The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. This morning we're in Genesis chapter 25. I began a series several months ago, uh, the the overarching theme is the gospel in Genesis. And been working our way through Genesis, uh, looking at what God has unfolded here before us. And today we come to Genesis chapter 25 and the third part of our series, the God of Jacob. From Genesis 25 through 50, chapter 50, you're dealing with the life of of Jacob, and there's a lot of focus on Joseph, but Jacob actually dies at the very end of, uh, of Genesis. <clears throat> so the book of Genesis moves really fast in time, in short chapters, and then when it gets to 25, it moves really slow in time and gives you a lot more detail about what's going on surrounding the life of Jacob. So as we, as we focus in today, we want to continue to ask the question and look and see how this is clearly pointing us to the gospel of Christ. So Genesis uh, 25 verse 19 is where I'll begin reading today. Our focal text will be 19 to 25. I invite you to stand. We stand at the beginning of our time of preaching to remind ourselves this is the word of God. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac praised to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. And the one shall be stronger than the other, the elder shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Let's pray. Father, I plead now before you that you would lead us to understand your word. Lord, I I, I confess that it is our bent to come to a moment like this and hardly listen or to take what we hear and apply it as we see fit. But we recognize this is your word and you have spoken it for a purpose. So Lord, cause us now to understand by the power of the spirit what you are saying and why you are saying it to us. Lead us to the proper response, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to make sure we, 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 we're 
not just launching in mid-story as to what's going on. God comes to a pagan man, Abraham, calls him to himself, promises to bless him, to give him offspring, to make him a great nation, and to give him a land. In chapter 24, verse 1, it says, When Abraham was old and well advanced in years, the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Now, there's a promise then that is to be re revealed and fulfilled for Abraham. There's something still left undone. That is that his son Isaac does not have a wife. So in verse 7 of chapter 24, it says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son there. He's speaking to his servant who is about to journey to Abraham's homeland to find a wife. The servant finds Rebecca. And she agrees, and the family agrees, that she would become the wife of Isaac. In verse 50, it says, Laban and Bethel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. So here's what they realize. This is from God and we're not standing in the way. So as Rebecca is about to leave her people to go with the servant to marry Isaac, in verse 60, it says they blessed her. And here's what they said. Our sister, may you become thousands of 10,000s and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. In other words, may you have many children and may many children come from you for generations to come. Now, what the, the, the history of Genesis is doing is not just bringing us back to some nostalgic day that we, that we should long for. What, what the history of Genesis is actually doing is pushing us forward. It's causing us to push forward into what is coming and to what God is doing. And here, as this is recorded about Rachel becoming Isaac's wife, it's pushing us forward to the generations that are going to come. But, but we've got a problem. The problem's already surfaced in what I read to you earlier. The problem is Rebecca's barren. She has not given to Isaac a son. Now God has promised that he will keep his covenant and that he will bless. And in verse 11 of chapter 25, it says he has blessed Isaac, his son, and he will continue to bless him. But we got this dilemma. So when we pick up here, according to verse 20, Isaac's 40 years old, when he, is, when he marries Rebecca, and when he's 60 years old, the twins are born. Now, as we unfold this text, there are two theological truths that I want to make sure we get. A theological truth is something we need to understand about God. So application is not always what do I need to do. Application quite often is what I need to believe. 
what I need to understand about God. So here's the truth. The Lord God sovereignly provides the continuation of the sea. Now let me define what I mean by sovereignly or sovereignty. The sovereignty of God means that God is the ultimate source of all power, all authority, and everything that exists. So God is in charge. God is the provider. So what transpires in this text is the work of God. And you need to look at it that way. This is what God is doing. Verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the, the daughter of Bethel, of Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Now, while that detail, she's not a Canaanite. He didn't marry outside of the people that God had commanded them not to marry outside of. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, you need to see this in the middle of two bookends surrounding Isaac's life. So let's go back to chapter 21 to his own birth. Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he said... And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had sworn to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Now, flip back in the other direction and go to chapter 30. Jacob marries Rachel. Would you like to guess what problem Rachel had? She was barren. Verse 22. And God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and she said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Now, here's what you're going to see in Genesis. Now, track with this. You're going, to be a, you're going to see a lot of kids born. But there's these distinct children who are born in very distinct ways. They can only be explained by the supernatural work of God. And all of these children are the lineage in which God is continuing his seed, which will lead to the supernatural birth, the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord, which will lead to supernatural births, the salvation of sinners. Now, unlike his father, Isaac does not seek human means. Isaac prays to the Lord. Now this shows us that God uses our prayers in fulfilling his purposes. Just, just a question right now. Is God going to fulfill his promise? Yes, he is. He had bound himself to this promise. God's going to fulfill it. But what you see here is God is fulfilling this promise. He's using the prayers of Isaac. 
Prayer is a means by which God chooses to grant his promised blessings. And the implication in this text is that Isaac prayed for 20 years. That he had learned, apparently, from his parents that human effort is not how you solve the problem. You go to God and you pray to God. Now, let me take a sidebar illustration here uh, because I should have done this several weeks ago when I was preaching through Abraham and Sarah because I had this conversation with multiple people. This is not a rebuke. I hope this is helpful. I am certain that there are people in this room right now or people listening to me who are struggling with issues of of barrenness, of the inability to conceive. I I certainly think you should pray to God and, and you should trust God and look to God. However, however, what you must not do is take this text as prescriptive, meaning because God answered Isaac's prayer, then God has to answer our prayer to give us a child. This is not a prescriptive prayer. This is descriptive. The Bible is describing a very specific event that took place at a very specific time for a very specific purpose. And here's the purpose, the continuation of the seed. This is something God has obligated himself to. And it is the seed that is at hand. Now, what we learn here as we look not only at at the birth of the twins, but also the birth of Isaac and the birth of Joseph, is that this narrative is teaching us that their birth is a supernatural provision. That the seed of Abraham, as it's gonna be called, exists because the Lord miraculously brings it to bear. It is a creative act of God. And this is what you see throughout Genesis. You don't just see creation in the first chapter. You see God's creative work happening multiple times as you work through Genesis. And not only do you see that, you see fall and you see redemption as it works out multiple times. This is the big story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption. What these verses though indicate to us is that God sovereignly, and graciously removes Rebecca's barrenness so that she could have children, notably the child of promise. Second thing we want to see in this text, second theological truth. The Lord God sovereignly chooses Jacob. It says in verse 22, the children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now the word struggle here is a strong word. Now ladies, cut me some slack here. I'm gonna be as gentle as I can to describe what's happening to this lady because I have no idea. Okay. Here's what I do know from looking at the Hebrew language. This is not discomfort. This is not that these kids were kicking in the womb. The word means to crush or to oppress. There's something severe happening inside of Rebecca. At a minimum, Rebecca thinks she's about to miscarry. But the language when she says, 
Why is this happening to me? The implication is Rebecca thinks she's about to die. So she goes to the Lord and she prays to God. And God speaks to her. And he says to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. So God is saying that even in the womb, these two nations are already at each other in conflict. And what is happening in your womb, Rachel, is going to happen in their lives and in the generations that are going to follow them. So Esau, the nation that comes from Esau is Edom. So as you're reading your Old Testament and you read about the Edomites, these are the descendants of Esau. So what nation comes from Jacob? Israel. God's going to rename him Israel. So the nation of Edom and the people of Israel come from Jacob. Now, if you study through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, you see this ongoing battle that God says is going to be between Israel and Edom. When Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, he first comes to the king of Edom and asks him for safe passage, and the king of Edom refuses. What ensues from that are multiple battles between the children of Israel and the Edomites. As you continue to work through the Old Testament, you know that the Babylonians are ultimately going to destroy Jerusalem. Would you like to guess who sided up with them? The Edomites. The Edomites join with the Babylonians in slaughtering the children of Israel and participated in tearing down the walls. But they're not through dealing with the Edomites yet. When Jesus Christ is born, King Herod finds out about this and comes up with a plan that he's going to destroy all the babies two years and younger because he wants rid of the king. Would you like to guess what nationality Herod was? He was an Edomian, an Edomite. So this ongoing battle continues. But even in the midst of the struggle, here's what you see throughout the Bible. God's will is accomplished. And that's what's happening here. God's will is being accomplished. And God's doing it in an unusual way. He says, the older shall serve the younger. Esau is born first, just a few seconds ahead of his brother Jacob. According to Middle Eastern customs, this meant Esau had the rights and the privileges of the firstborn. But contrary to human customs, by his grace, God chooses Jacob to rule over Esau. He chooses Israel to rule over Edom. So the theme here of God choosing, contrary to human customs, the younger over the older, can be traced throughout the Old Testament. God chose Abel over Cain. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. He chose the younger Joseph over his brothers. He chose the younger Ephraim over Manasseh, the younger David over his brothers, and the younger Solomon over Adonijah. Quote, 
God's blessing is extended to those who have no claim to it. They receive what they do not deserve. Now, Genesis chapter 25 in this particular text comes up in, your, in the New Testament. It helps us to understand what's happening here. So I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Now, let me tell you what's happening here in context. Paul's answering this question. Why are Jews not believing the gospel? Or let me say it more clearly. Why are not all of the Jews believing the gospel? Why is this? And with that question in your head, you pick up here in verse 6. Paul's answering it. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offering, offspring. For what is that? This is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Let me just pause right there before we get to verse 11. Everybody look up here. How'd those two boys come to be? Natural means or supernatural means? Huh? This is God's argument right here. The only way anybody becomes a Christian is supernatural means. It is never, ever the natural means of man. Now, verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, and here's what this means, not because of anything these boys are going to do, God's not looking forward and saying, these boys are going to do something and I'm going to pick one over the other. They're both rascals. You're going to find that out next week. They're both rascals. But in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now, I'm going to fold back to that in application in just a moment. But before I get there, let me just give you a couple of details that I want to make sure you kind of hold in your head. Hopefully, you'll come back next week. That you're holding in your head that'll help you to keep this story flowing because we're, we're just mid-story, okay? When her days to give birth were complete, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. That means his skin was red. That all his body was like a hairy cloak. This is a red-headed, red-haired individual who was distinct looking. My, my first child, Jacob, by the way, <laughs> was born. He looked like he had a toupee on his head. He had this big, long head of hair. He looked kind of funny, quite honestly, with that big old hair on top of his head. Very distinct. So they called his name Harry. That's what Esau means. They called him Harry because he was Harry. Afterward, his brother came out holding Esau's heel, so they named him Heel Grabber. That's what Jacob means. Heel Grabber, which 
goes on to mean deceiver or supplanter. So you can think somebody's a heel grabber, somebody trying to get at somebody. Then he gives us some details of what these boys were like. When the boys grew up, Esau was a redneck. No. He was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob uh, was an egghead. He was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now, you got two distinct personalities. You got this one guy who will not be held down. He will not be confined. Who's not going to work in an office. He's got to be outside. He's got to be doing. And, and, and the implication already is this. There's a wild factor to Esau. He's a little bit out of control. And you're going to see that right after this in the story, which we'll look, pick up there next week. He, he, he's, 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 he's an uncontrollable fellow. Then you got this dude who sits in tents. It's not that he's lazy. It's not the implication that Jacob's lazy. Jacob's a thinker. Now this speaks to what he's going to do. He's going to take that thinking and he's going to deceive. He's going to use it to his own advantage to deceive his brother. Then you got one final detail to create the tension that's coming for us. Esau loved Jacob because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now the question is, why does it not just say Esau loved, Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob? Why does it say Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game? You could argue that, that one of the greater heroes in Genesis is Isaac. There's less negative said about Isaac than most anyone else. But right here, this is a negative indictment. It's not just that he's playing favorites with Esau. It really has nothing to do with Esau. The reason Isaac loves Esau is because of his stomach. He likes what Esau cooks. He loves the wild game supper on a regular basis. And that's what drives him to set his affection on a kid. Now, fathers, there's not a one of you in this room that does not have a tendency to move toward something a child performs for you. Not who they are. And there are a lot of people in this room who have been damaged by dads who treated you for a performance, not who you were. Just says Rebecca loved Jacob. She has an argument, if you will. God's told her that the older is going to serve the younger. But both of these parents, hear me on this. Both of these parents are sinning by playing favorites. And because they play favorites, it's going to lead to all kinds of dysfunction in the context of this family and all kinds of pain that's going to continue for, for, for decades. It's going to continue on and on and swell and get bigger and bigger. Now, we'll pick up there next week as we see what happens between the two of them. So today, I want to take this focal text and ask the so what question. I'm asking really two questions that are not on your paper here. I'm asking two questions. Where is the gospel here? How is this text connecting us to Christ? Now, the answer is a big theological statement. 
And then I'm going to show you how I'm connected to it. Here's the statement. Christ's redemption of people is totally the work of God. So what God is preparing you for here in this text is where, where he's moving with this grand narrative is the salvation of humanity. And what we want to see is that this is totally God's work. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. While you're turning there, here's the thought I want to place in your head. That just as the birth of the twins was a supernatural work of God, the new birth is a supernatural work of God. Today in the liturgical calendar is the day of Pentecost. It is a day that the church celebrates the coming of the Holy Spirit. The convicting, regenerating, enabling work of the Spirit of God who dwells in his people, who empowers his people. Sometimes people come to me and say, man, that was a powerful sermon, as if there was something powerful in me. I have preached sermons before that I thought that was the flattest thing that has ever been served up in front of a group of people. And people have been converted as a result of preaching that sermon. You know why? Because it has absolutely nothing to do with me. Amen. Nothing. It is the power of God through the convicting work, regenerating work of the Spirit of God that saves people. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Explanation point. According to his great mercy. So not according to anything about you or in you or what you're going to do. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that brings us to life and it is God who caused it not you not me I'll tell you a story about a month ago baby Benjamin Griffin was born to Taylor and Connie Griffin they're members of this local church She carried the baby full term. She went into labor. The baby was born and immediately it was a crisis. For 45 minutes, the doctors did all they could do. And they pronounced Benjamin dead. As his father Taylor and his grandfather John held him in their arms and prayed, Baby Benjamin gripped John's pinky. And the nurse said, I've got a heartbeat. It was touch and go for days. As many of you in this congregation prayed for and pleaded for this young couple and this family and this little child. And he improved. And he improved. And he improved some more. The implications was, well, if he survives, he'll be severely damaged. Well, you need to know 
about 10 days ago, they brought Benjamin home and all tests, MRIs show that he's perfectly normal. It's a miracle. It is a miracle. Now listen, don't get lost what's gonna happen next. Don't you get lost. Jesus stood outside of the grave of his friend Lazarus and he wept. His friend was dead. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he performed a miracle. And Lazarus got up out of that tomb and he walked out of the grave. And people rejoiced. And I'm sure they clapped like you did. But Lazarus in a tomb somewhere in Bethany. He died again. And sadly, and I hope and pray it's a long life. One day, if Jesus doesn't come first, Benjamin will live a full life and he'll die. You see, friends, the greatest miracle that God can perform is not to heal you from cancer. It's not to heal you from some dreaded disease. It's not to make a baby live. The greatest miracle that God can and does perform is the new birth. Amen. That God would save sinners. This is a quote, I tweeted it earlier today. Quote, the people of God do not exist by natural birth, but are born of the spirit. They exist because God brought them into existence as his people. It is totally the work of God. Second, just as God's choice of Jacob has nothing to do with him, God's choice of his people has nothing to do with them. God did not move to you because of anything you did or anything you were going to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one. Now, I'm not gonna keep you here a long time, but I'm gonna finish this sermon. Everybody with me? If you, if you need to go, if you need to go, now be a good time. If you need to go, seriously. But I'm gonna finish. I'm actually gonna go back to verse 18. Now track with this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the fullness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now everybody look up here and you hear me and you hear me clear. I'm gonna to explain to you something about Parkwood for the next few minutes. We didn't stand on our head and do a show to wow you today. 
we will not do that. We will not give in to the flesh to attract a crowd at this church. We will not come up with human means to get a human response and call people Christians. Here's what we will do at Parkwood. We will preach the gospel because it is the foolishness of God that saves man. It is the foolishness of the cross that the world looks at and says, give me a sign. Listen to me. There are lost people all around baby Benjamin's life. And they haven't believed because of the miracle yet. And they're not going to believe because of the miracle. The only reason they're going to believe is because of the miracle of the new birth applied to their heart through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Period. It is the gospel that saves. And the gospel alone. Now, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. And when you hear calling, you hear call to a preacher, call to missions. That is not what God means at all. When he says calling, you've got to go back to verse 24. But to those who were called. To what? What are you called to? Salvation. So consider your calling to salvation, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to world standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame that is wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low in the, and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Did you notice the repetition? God chose, God chose, God chose. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Listen, you're going to have one boast in the presence of God, Jesus Christ. You better make sure theologically that's your boast right now. What's messing up the church in Gastonia, North Carolina is people who think a whole lot of themselves and people who think they saved themselves. And what the church needs is a good healthy dose of the sovereign hand of God to understand it is God who saves. You hear me? It is God who saves. That's what it says. I am the God who saves. The God who saves. Not the God who creates an opportunity. I am the God who saves. So let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me tell you what happened at the end of the last service. Different illustration than the other ones because God gave us one. At 9.30, we baptized Stephen Kay and his wife. I'm standing down there after the service and Stephen comes up to me. He reaches out to me and he says, you have no idea what God's done for me today. I kind of smiled. He said, no, no, no. He said, you got to understand. I'm the youngest twin in my family. And my brother is as far away from God as he can be. And today, what I've understood is God saved me. And I embraced my brother in Christ. Because what Stephen Kay did standing over here with me is this. He boasted in the Lord. 
Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You might be going, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Yeah, but what? But what? You want to be a part of the equation? What this text does is it hems us in, friends. And it makes us understand this. I bring nothing to the table. Corinth was an unlikely place to find a church. A very unlikely place. And hear me, Gastonia is an unlikely place to find a church. And you are an unlikely bunch of people to be called Christians. And I, above all people, am an unlikely person to be standing up here preaching with you today. Any of us, who are Christians, any of us have one boast. Our boast is in God, in Christ who saves by his mercy and by his grace for his purpose in the world. Let us pray. Lord, you have humbled us today and caused us to rejoice. So I pray for the believer that we would rejoice in the God of our salvation. I pray for the unbeliever in this room, even the person who's been in church their whole life who think they've added to and helped you out. May they repent of that today and see as you have shown them through your word and by the spirit that salvation is from you alone. So God, may we cry out to you, the God who saves, the God who redeems, the God of grace and mercy. And may we now together as the people of God worship the God of our salvation. And may we do so in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.